Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and as always, I'm here with Karen Henson. What's up, Karen? Hello, everyone. How's it going? I think everybody's doing pretty good today, and one of the reasons everybody's doing really good today is because we have guys from the Pillar Seminary. If you listen to part one, then um, you heard their story, but just real briefly to let you know, the Pillar Seminary is a seminary in Omaha, Nebraska, but you can actually go to class anywhere in the world as long as you have an internet connection. So um, you can take classes online and get trained there. They're a little bit different in the way that they do their curriculum because they video and record all of their lectures. So when you get online with them, there's a lot of interaction and working on projects and and stuff like that. So it's a pretty cool little education style that they got going. I'm going to push it over to Eric and let him introduce himself and and the other guys, and then we'll launch back into context. I'm Eric Smith, the founder and president of the Pillar Seminary. And with me today is Scott Booth, who is our Old Testament uh, (laughs) faculty member. He's, He's also the academic dean he hates administrative titles, so we always call him every administrative title you can possibly nice. Can we like make some up and like and <laughs> absolutely yes. Nice. Uh, and we also have Dan Lowry. Ew. No, no, movie quote. Movie quote. No, come on. We prepped you when you came in and sat down. You're my boy, Blue. <laughs> that by the way has gotten me in a lot of trouble. Mm. Like, uh, yell mm. that from a during a sermon. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So obviously part one in this, we talked a lot about just the importance of context. And so now I think for uh, part two. I have to admit that was so long ago, I'm struggling to remember (laughs) what we talked about. (laughs) It's all good, bro. I think it'll come to you. So we really want to get into some practicalities of like, hey, what does this actually look like when we're reading uh, scripture? So I think the the best place to start is in the beginning, right? I mean, you open up the Bible to the first book, first chapter, first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we, we read through this from a standpoint of modern Western kind of rationality. We bring a lens to it where we're like, okay, sweet, God is there. He created the heavens and the earth, and uh, there's for some reason it's formless and void, but then he's, okay, day one, there's day two, there's day three, and and then you get into debates, which kind of sometimes drive me crazy about how old is the earth, and, you know, how did God, how exactly did he do this? And we're asking these kinds of questions. And so I would just ask you guys, one, is that how we should read Genesis? And two, if not, then how should we? Yeah, it- it's a good question, and part of what's very interesting to me is the way people in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East in particular, uh, talked about creation or the stuff that they cared about was very different than the types of things that we care about today. And the only reason we know that is because we have a bunch of uh, stories or texts from the ancient Near East, texts about creation, texts that include creation themes. Uh, like. Uh, This morning in Torah class, we were working through actually an incantation for dealing with a toothache, but it has a lot of uh, creation sorts of themes in it that you can see. Um, And and the bottom line is that in the ancient Near East, they thought about creation very differently. And so when we approach uh, Genesis 1 or creation and just kind of with our default, hey, this is just a normal, natural reading of the text for us. Um, It's actually very different than what an ancient Israelite, I think, would approach it with. So an easy example, 
is when we think about creation, we think about the making of the material substance of something. You know, the actual uh, making of the physical thing out of nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's a very Western way of thinking about creation. In the ancient Near East, they were way more concerned about function Mm -hmm. and destiny and purpose and bringing order out of chaos. So we look, you know, you mentioned the formless and void, right? In the Mm -hmm. beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. And we're like, wait, what? Did something happen to make it formless and void? What's going on? Can God create a formless void thing? That doesn't seem right. And you, mm-hmm. you get all of these kinds of issues. Well, every single story, with the exception possibly of one Egyptian text, from the ancient Near East, creation begins with a watery chaos. Right. So to begin with, hey, there's the earth is formless and void, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep. For an ancient Israelite, it's just like, yeah, of course, that's where we start a creation story. Mm-hmm. No big deal. And then what you see is God bringing order out of that chaos, and he is concerned about function and purpose. So, for example, the greater light to govern the day, that's a purpose statement, mm-hmm. or the lesser light to govern the night, or people to rule and have dominion over the earth mm-hmm. and to multiply and fill it. Those are purpose statements. Yeah. Uh, and and that's much more what they're concerned with. So it, it's just a kind of a simple example of how uh, the context, when you get into their world and you begin to see how they viewed things, it, it affects the the way you approach the biblical text. Yeah, so help us understand, how, how do we know what an ancient Near Easterner would have thought when coming to this text, or, or having it read to them? Yeah, it's a good question. And you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that we can say an ancient Israelite definitely would have thought this, yeah, right? Because right. these are people, and they, they, they were individuals, and different ancient Israelites would think different things. So we're speaking in generalizations, but generally speaking, we have a window into their cultural heritage via the texts and the archaeology from that time period. And the major ones that you guys have interacted with are from the Babylonian culture, the Sumerian, the Egyptian. Are those the major? Well, the good stuff is Sumerian, but oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, there, there's a there's there's a bewildering array of things actually. Yeah, Egyptian, uh, Sumerian stuff that's in Akkadian that could be Babylonian, could be Assyrian, could be Neo-Babylonian. Yeah. You know the the Scott mentioned in the last podcast hieroglyphic Luvian stuff. There's Ugaritic stuff. There, there's there's a whole just vast array of things uh, that have been dug up. And when you read and study this stuff, you begin to see crazy parallels among all of the stories where you're seeing a pattern about what they cared about. Is that right? Yeah, you do see some patterns about what they care about. Um, and you do see similarities. There's a lot of similarities. But what is so invigorating about the study is uh, the differences. The Mm -hmm. differences are where you can identify, okay, this is the new stuff that God is on to, the the new things that he's showing his people. The Mm -hmm. rich theology is in the differences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's uh, important to state that there's so much of this world that we're talking about here that we've discovered in text and archaeology that's just assumed. The author of just all of these biblical text we're talking about assumes familiarity 
in a lot of ways so that it can be subverted, I think is what, mm-hmm. what Eric's talking mm-hmm. about, uh, to really highlight who God is and, and what his purposes are through mm-hmm. his people uh, in a way that it probably was shocking to yeah. an ancient Israelite. Well, you think about it. I mean, you know, these people have been for give or take 400 years have been in Egypt and talk about cross-cultural context. I mean, 400 years in a place being subjected to the, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's three major Egyptian uh, creation stories. Is that right? Egyptian creation stuff is complicated. Uh, Yeah, Egyptian's weird. There's two main systems that we can get at, either from pyramid texts, which represent one system, or the coffin texts which represent another system. And then you have the stele, which uh, seems to represent maybe another. So it's more like schools of thought. Yeah, Sorry, right. I'm getting a little too technical. No, 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 that's fine. Yeah. But, but I think the, the point being that the, you know, here are people who are very familiar with these different creation stories. And then coming out of Egypt, they're given a Hebrew story. I think more of what the issue is, is that God is playing right into the cultural context that they're aware of. He's playing right into their cultural heritage and just, you know, essentially saying, look, guys, I did this. Here's why I did it. Here's what my purpose was, and here's your purpose. So when we come to Genesis then and we open our Bibles, then how in the world do we get from, okay, there's day one, there's day two, there's day three. I mean, how do you pay attention to the fact that, you know, hey, days one through three, he's forming things, and then days four through six, he's filling it, he's assigning, you know, the function to it? I mean, unless you've been kind of trained to pay attention to those things, it's easy to miss, and then you get into the plain reading of the text, and then you kind of miss a a lot of what's really beautiful about the Genesis account. So fill in some of that background for us, and then how would you encourage somebody who's listening to this to proceed when they come to a text where they're like, man, I am I really don't know what's going on here? Man, that's such a good question, and I, I, I think a consistent struggle that we've had around here is how do we make this material as accessible as possible? That's part of why we do the podcast, but you know, our mission in the seminary is to, is to equip pastors to be able to, you know, help their congregations through this kind of stuff. But it's really difficult because on the one hand, I, I, the last thing I want to do, and we talk about this a lot around here. The last thing we want to do is present this image that you shouldn't read your Bible because unless you have a PhD in ancient Near Eastern languages and literature, you can't get anything out of it. Totally. But at the same time, we have to be honest with the fact that Doing a PhD in ancient Near Eastern language and literature helps us get a lot of clarity out of Scripture that we yeah. didn't have prior to the study. So, I I don't know, Scott, help me out. Uh, I think that in terms of strategies, if you're reading and uh, you're um, wanting to catch some of this stuff, I think the the first thing you have to understand, uh, well, I, w- I was going to say about Genesis, but it's really about all these books. They're brilliant. Like, mm-hmm. It's just brilliant literature. So forget the fact that it's inspired scripture. Like, yep. throw that away and say not, you don't not buy it permanently. Yeah, yeah, not permanently. Yeah. You're yeah, just, yeah. for the moment. You're you're not <laughs> emphasizing moment, that at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter for the fact that this is brilliant literature. Mm-hmm. So if you're walking away thinking, "Boy, these guys are stupid," yeah, probably you missed something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I would tell you, slow down. 
These are not cavemen. The pyramids have been around for a thousand years before these guys start writing this stuff down. So realize these are people just like you and you are dealing with very trained, very smart people that are weaving an intricate story for you. Yeah. And you are not, as a, as a novice and new person to the story, mm-hmm. going to plumb the depths of it. Yeah, like, so, so assume like, that. Yeah, and, and approach it thinking, you know what? When I think this is dumb and silly, I should probably just write it down and start thinking they're very smart. And the things that you that might allow you to make some observations that you otherwise might have just mowed over. Yeah, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so C.S. Lewis calls this uh, chronological snobbery. You know that it's like, hey, the the older something is, the dumber they are, which. You look at today's day and age and you're like, really? <laughs> like, um, so yeah, it's, it's just the assumption that, hey, these people were probably really smart and I should probably pay attention as someone who's trying to understand. I'll tell you that I, I, the first day of grad school, one of my professors told me, if you hand in anything that is as literarily brilliant as the Epic of Gilgamesh, I don't care what it says, if it is as literarily brilliant as that. I will give you a degree right now. Nice. And he's and he meant it. Yeah. And he's like, that's that's you don't you are you look at this as if it's these these idiots with these gods with babies. Mm-hmm. You have to understand these these are not idiots. This is very advanced philosophical and speculative thinking that they're engaged in, and they're making very bold claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Book of Genesis. Mm, yeah. That's good. But the language is different from your systematic theologies or your political debates or whatever you watch on TV. So again, like we talked about last time, have some cultural graciousness and humility and realize it's very possible that the people that wrote this are more trained and smarter than you. <laughs> Okay, so if we're going to kind of zoom out a little and summarize what we've said about the creation account, we have said when you approach the text, we want to slow down and assume the best of the author, of the people, of the culture, um, approach it with humility. And then even something different is that we are asking maybe not the right questions when we're approaching the text. And so it's not necessarily questions like where does this come from or even scientific questions that we're used to placing over the top of the Genesis creation accounts, but it is what is the purpose and who is God. Is that is that right? You've got it. You've got it. And, and I will tell you two things on top of that. One, there are other questions to be asked about the universe than the one you default to, which is what you alluded to there. Yeah. Like, for example, instead of where did we come from, what about what is my purpose in life? The other one is what you've just said is the way I would instruct any student in a seriology. I'm not, this is what I'm saying is this is not special for Christians. Yeah. Mm. This is standard method for clear thinking. Yeah, these are the and rules. That, That's right. These are the rules for clear thinking when you approach different cultures. And when you do that with Scripture, the fruit it bears is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference. What was this um, text trying to accomplish? Yeah, and going off that, I think it's really interesting when you start asking the right questions, which is if 
standard Westerner is going to come to Genesis 1, and they're going to be like, okay, how did God do this? We're asking more scientific-type questions. We really want 2 plus 2 to equal 4. And what I'm hearing you guys say is, no, actually, the author is coming from a very different perspective, and he's asking different questions, or he's, he's answering different questions, and so we need to be asking the questions that he's answering. Who is the deity? What function does creation have? And then I think what I'd love to hear you guys talk about, because this is a common thing that I, sometimes I get in our apologetics ministry, is people who come and be like, hey, why did God have to rest on the seventh day? Does God get tired? You know, which is a very uh, Western kind of... The answer is he's lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so speak to that. I mean, how does studying these ancient texts inform the way we even read stuff like that? I think one of the real important grids that we miss a lot of times that really helps us make sense of a lot of early Genesis is uh, temple imagery. And uh, however that translates to all of the precise details, uh, folks in the Near Eastern world conceived of the cosmos in some ways as a temple. They talked about creation in temple terms and talked about temple in creational terms, described their temples in those sorts of ways. And we so, should pause by there and say that the temple is the place where the God dwells. Yes. Right? right? That, yes. It, don't take that for granted. It's it, The God doesn't dwell everywhere. Yeah. The, go, yep. the God dwells in the temple. So yep. right off the bat, the significance of Genesis describing the cosmos as God's temple is, is super important. And so uh, when temples, temples had images, idols. Mm. Temples uh, were entered, and the deity took up rest in the temple. Temples had life-giving waters in their gardens and trees of life, and temple servants working in the garden. So, uh, I mean, this is a lot of temple imagery. Yeah, it, it's normal that in ancient Near Eastern creation, the, the deity is doing the creating, is bringing order out of chaos, and when that's accomplished, then the deity is said to be able to take up his or her rest. So, for example, in Enuma Elish, which is a, a creation story, Babylonian creation story from approximately the 1200 to 1100 BC time frame, after all the creative acts have been done, then Marduk, the god in this story, says, a house I shall build, let it be the abode of my pleasure. And house could also be translated temple, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. a house I'm going to build. Within it, I shall establish its holy place. I shall appoint my holy chambers. I shall establish my kingship. And it's that issue of uh, establishing your kingship, taking your seat on the throne. That's what's going on when you talk about uh, a god taking up his or her rest. And mm -hmm. you see it in scripture, too, not just in the creation story, but in the Psalms even. So like Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Mm. Here I will sit enthroned, mm. for I have desired it. There's an intimate connection between rest and taking up your rule. Mm. Yeah. Uh, talk about where in the New Testament the king takes up his rule. I've never read the New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> no, somewhere in Revelation. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, imagery is the 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 thought world is assumed. The imagery is similar when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father yeah, and yeah, takes right. up His rule. Yeah. I'll also say that this has to do with Jesus's frustration of behavior on the day that we celebrate God's rest, mm -hmm. right? Which is Sabbath. 
Sabbath is the day you, you celebrate God's rest, which is the day you celebrate his rule. Mm. And so what Jesus seems so frustrated about is that you would celebrate his rule in a way that would be different from the character of his rule. Mm. So, mm. Uh, so throughout... That's right. So throughout the Old Testament, you have these stories that repeat over and over and over again. People cry out, God, help, help, help. And God just comes running in. That's my job. I love it. Right? And he, <laughs> I love helping. That's what I do. Right? And then Jesus and then Jesus shows up and like some lady is sick and Jesus says, can I help this lady? And these Pharisees don't understand because they're like, but it's Sabbath. We don't understand. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is like, what do you mean you don't understand? Yep. This is the day you're celebrating the rule and rest of, of God. And what he does is help and save and rescue. Mm-hmm. You actually rely on the fact that he helps and saves and rescues. So, of course, you celebrate his day by mm-hmm. saving and rescuing. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So instead of thinking about, well, God worked really hard those six days and he needed a nap, Instead, the image that comes into my mind anyway is the image of a king being coronated, like proceeding down the halls of Westminster Abbey or something with everybody lined there looking at him and he goes up and sits on the throne and somebody puts a crown on his head and a scepter in his hand and that dude's in charge. Is that now that now that everything is made? I'm going to start running this place. Yeah, now yeah. the temple is functioning as it should. Which is which is rest. Like, hey, I've, I've given everything its function, and, I, and now that that is at rest, but now it's moving, and I'm in control. He's the um, sovereign ruler. That's yeah, right. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. right. Yeah. On that day, you hit the start button. So, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. this, this is uh, definitely something that traces all the way through Scripture, yeah. uh, as is the, the man and woman made in the image of the deity. Yeah. Uh, it's mm. also temple temple talk. It's also in Egypt. It's not just Mesopotamian. It's not just in Hittite stuff. It's in, in Egypt, you have uh, pictures of the deities fashioning people on a potter's wheel and touching Ankh, the Ankh symbol, to their nostrils, mm. which if you want pictures, just email me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, was, I, I photographed nice. the heck out of that because that was amazing. Yeah. This paints a much different picture than the standard, okay, um, this is how God created the world. That doesn't have a whole lot to do with me. I wasn't there. And the world's spinning. And so I guess, thank you, God, for like giving me uh, an earth. But what in the world? And now he's resting. And so I guess we ought to just like take a break on Sunday or whatever. And I don't like that's understanding the context of this and what other ancient Near Eastern texts inform the story, then that's a much broader understanding of what God is doing. He's, he's the, the cosmos, the world, everything in it is his temple, and he has given it a function. I mean, we think about—this has huge implications for salvation. I mean, we think about salvation as, hey, you're, you know, your sins are forgiven, and now you can just, like, not go to hell. Thanks, God. No, now and you can function. Exactly right. Now, now, now you can function. I mean, that has huge implications for sanctification, for spiritual formation, for the energizing work of the Holy Spirit to bring you to life, you know? Salvation and, uh, is not the end, it's the means. Boom. That's good. Yeah, I love it. And then you can start functioning. You're absolutely right. They don't think of creation as telling you 
this thing about, oh, well, thank you, God, I guess, for making this place. This mm. has direct implication for how you live your it's life. Not, it's not knowledge. It's a summons. To really understand it would mean that you, you get to work. Yep. It's, it's not passing on knowledge. It's summoning you to... Which, again, has huge implications. I know in the church world right now there's this huge push in for uh, kind of this faith and work initiative and uh, where people are, like, blown away by this, quote-unquote, new idea that actually my workplace could be my ministry. Like, um, and that seems like a new idea to us, but it's actually very ancient. Yeah. Okay, wait, just stop for a second. <laughs> I have been quiet, and I just, just please explain to me. This is a thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you not tracking that? No, listen. Scott doesn't track anything uh, if it's not Nice. Luvian. Okay, no, no, this is a thing. <laughs> Scott, there's this whole other world out there that... <laughs> yeah, okay. No, 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 absolutely. The entire thing is that when you gain citizenship into the kingdom, you have regained function and purpose mm. where you are, like the end. I, I don't know what else to say. Like yeah. that's that's been there since the stinking beginning. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's also the gospel of the kingdom. Yeah, yes. that's right. Yes. Yep. Exactly. So the last part that I think I'd love to hear you talk about is the way we started in uh, part one, when we just talked about how people typically read the Old Testament is, okay, cool, there's some narrative stuff here, like I love kind of the drama of the Joseph narrative, and then I get into Exodus, and oh, sweet, there's like this fight with Pharaoh, and God wins, and awesome, and then you get into legal stuff, you know? And it's like, uh, uh, for sure, Leviticus. I mean, nobody knows what in the world's going on in Leviticus. And then you get to Numbers, and there's some cool narrative stuff there, but but then it's like more law, and then Deuteronomy's the law again? Like, what in the world? And then I think a lot of people just understand law as this bad thing that is there, and somehow, I think in moralism, it's, okay, I've got to somehow try to obey this so that I can please God, but I can't really obey it, and that's really frustrating to me, and so what do I do? And people throw their hands up exasperated. So it's got to be something else besides that. So help us unpack the rules to read law. All right. Eric, you want to do it? You want me? I will, I'll give the overview and then you get to give the details. Okay. So here's the overview. We have a tendency to think that law is the text. Mm. That it's just, that's intuitive to us because in our culture, the law equals the written text. Mm -hmm. You broke the that law, is, like the, that code right there. Yeah. Yep. So even using the word code is foreign in ancient Israel. Mm-hmm. So when you're dealing with the Old Testament, what you've got to understand is that the written text is not the law itself. The written text is expressions of some principle, and it's that principle that's the law itself. So mm -hmm. the written text that you're reading, you could think of it as case studies, mm -hmm. right? So I read something that says, if you purchase a Hebrew slave, he'll serve for six years, and in the seventh year, you shall go free. What you have to think is this is not the, the, the law itself. This is an expression or a case study of some principle, and it's that principle that matters. And uh, another way, I guess, to phrase it is uh, the phrase that we use, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you've got the letter of the law there. That's the, that's the case study. Mm. 
And it's the, it's the principle behind that or the spirit of the law, so to speak, that actually matters. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the letter of the law doesn't, I, I, I guess. So give us an example of that. So one case that demonstrates this is actually the book of Ruth. So if you read the book of Ruth, and what Boaz does at the end is he combines the law of leveret marriage with the law of the Redeemer, neither of which is to the letter of the law. Mm. So if you try to figure out the book of Ruth by figuring out what law is Boaz citing, your conclusion will be he either doesn't know the law or he cites it incorrectly. Or there's a third option, which is he understands both and the letter of the law isn't the thing. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, without getting too far in depth on what's going on in Leverett marriage and Redeemer laws, uh, what's going on there is restoring the family to where it was when it suffers a loss, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's in an individual life or in property. And Boaz combined both of these laws to say, look, guys, uh, this is the way we have to behave in this situation. There is, at the end of the book, a guy who will not do it, and he has to suffer shame because of it, Mm. uh, which is uh, quite a remarkable thing in the book. But that's, that's one proof of the fact that even in the Old Testament world, it was never understood that what's going on in these laws is the exact expression of them. And what, what I mean by that is it's, it's very inefficient. If God is going to say, here is every case in human life, and I need to be able to speak to all of okay. them. Mm-hmm. Instead, what he says is, all right, imagine a scenario where you have, I don't know, you have uh, an ox. And let's say this ox is, uh, you know that this ox hurts people if it had the chance. Now, what happens if that ox gets loose? And then uh, the law will say, well, if you didn't put a fence up, you're in big trouble. Yeah, yeah, right. And the issue there is not about an ox, and it's not about a fence. The issue is your primary concern has to be the safety of your neighbor. Mm -hmm. It's not about an ox. And evidence of that comes from Paul. Yep. When Paul says, should you, should you pay missionaries and pastors? Paul says, do you muzzle an ox? And then he even says, do you think an ox law is about an ox? Mm. It's not about a stinking ox. No. You think it's the ox that God cares about? No. He's trying to tell you, if you will do this for an animal, how much more so would you do this for a person? Mm. And it's the same way Jesus treats it, right? When he says, didn't you on the Sabbath take out your donkey to go uh, eat and drink water. How much more so should I help this woman who is sick? Right. Don't tell Dan I just did New Testament stuff. <laughs> no. Uh, but the point is, these were <laughs> hashtag pillar. <laughs> Guys, it happens. Guys, that's what class is like. That's awesome. Um, uh, the point is, these laws are never about the specific of these laws, meaning. The fact that I don't have an ox doesn't set me free from ox laws. Mm-hmm. The facts that I don't the fact that I don't have a roof, I live in an apartment. Mm-hmm. 
Therefore, I don't, I don't have a roof that I have to build a fence around mm-hmm. that keeps me out of that law. Absolutely not. Mm. You don't, the safety of your neighbor is your concern and your responsibility. So what you're saying is that the rule is telling us about the rule giver. And so this is probably not the best example. But if we're saying in our society today, you cannot drink alcohol and go drive. Like the purpose behind that isn't necessarily the drinking and the driving, but it is the safety, the protection, the well-being of the citizens. Is that what you're saying? Like you, you have to get beneath the meaning of the law to understand, and that is what the Lord is asking Israel to hold. Exactly. Okay. So, for example, there's, and that can sometimes do funny things. Like in Leviticus, you're going to hear that, that certain food and certain objects within the temple are sacred. You don't get to touch them, period. They belong to the Lord. However, and Samuel, David, is running away from Saul. And he... Uh, goes and eats, eats the showbread. The, he goes and eats the showbread. Yeah, yeah. And, spoilers, I ask my students this every semester. Why can David eat the showbread? And the answer is so simple. Okay, and this I hate saying this because it, it ruins it for my students, but whatever, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> the, the, the answer is... David is hungry and he's scared and he's running away for his life. And God has food yeah. and he feeds him. God, God cares about him. His, yeah. That's it. He takes from his own table and says, you're scared and hungry and running away. Here's some food. Mm. And so when Jesus then will quote that same passage and he's like, what are you kidding me? Yeah. You think this is about a rule? Mm-hmm. How did you get so wrong? Yeah. Yeah. It's not about the rule understand what's behind there. Well, and what what really what they're doing is in in focusing on that specific expression or rule is they're maligning the character and nature of God. Because that's because that's what ends up happening. I mean, just today, I mean, as again, as an apologist, I encounter people all the time. I mean, I just talked to a guy recently who was just like God did this, this, and this, and I can't believe in a God who would do that. And I'm just like, man, there's so many things wrong with what you just said. But it is, it ultimately is a, what is God like? I mean, I heard you say, Scott, recently about the Amalekites. When Moses is there and he's got his hands up and the the Lord is like, I'm going to blot your name out from the face of the earth. And the reason he did that is because they totally attacked vulnerable people. And, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of examples like that. It's funny, too, when you start talking about some of the issues that are difficult in the Old Testament about slavery and bringing uh, conquered women into the tribe of Israel. And there's, like, this this question of sexual conquest or, you know, rape or something like that. And it's like, actually, no, if you know the culture of that, there's very vulnerable people that by consequence of this uh, military engagement are even more vulnerable now, and now I'm going to put laws in place that protect them when they come into the camp. The whole premise of the law is Israel was vulnerable in Egypt and scared, Mm. and they cried out, and God came and rescued them. Yep. Uh, how, How discordant our behavior is today and our attitudes and our actions with the primary impetus behind the law Mm. in the Old Testament. We ignore it at our peril. Mm. So let's make it more practical then. So for our audience, if they are reading through Genesis, Exodus, they skip over Leviticus, what are they missing? Like, how do they approach it? Oh yeah, Leviticus is a different game because that's directed towards how does a priest behave. So uh, you have to understand there's a difference here. 
There's a couple of things people who are reading through Scripture need to understand. One, it's not just laws that are considered instruction. Stories are also considered yeah, instruction. That's, yeah, that's and the word in Old Testament for law is the same word for instruction. So, for example, the way God treats Abraham is instruction. Mm-hmm. The way God treats Israel when they're scared and they need help in Egypt is Torah. Like it is instruction. You have to act that way. The way that you ask God to treat you when you cry out and are in need and he comes to the rescue, that is instruction for how you, who have now received help, are to behave. Yeah. That's just the end of it. There's no difference there. Now, when you get to Leviticus, this is instruction specifically for priests who are dealing with the presence of God in amongst the people of Israel within either the temple or the tabernacle or the camp or the entire nation kind of state, I guess, without, for lack of a better world, word. So Leviticus is, is slightly different, but it's more about, I would say, modern term would be worship. Is that fair, Eric, you think? Yeah, it is, but I... I would emphasize you've got a holy God living in the midst of an unholy people. How do we pull that off? Yeah, yeah and a yeah. dirty people. Dirty right. and yeah. unholy, yeah. which are different things, right? So you're going to see stuff in there about how do we get them, uh, how do we pull this bizarre thing off? Yeah, which is where atonement comes into play. Exactly, yep. exactly. So Leviticus will be, a Leviticus is different from that weird section in Exodus in Numbers and Deuteronomy that you mentioned earlier. So I think just tying this up with the context of the Old Testament, I mean, obviously we we gave examples of the creation narrative and how understanding the ancient Near Eastern context really brings out the meaning that's not readily apparent to a Westerner, especially 21st century American. So when we're asking the right questions that the text is attempting to answer, then we're able to draw out and do, I mean, from a methodological standpoint, have a good Bible study method that draws the text out instead of reading our own meaning into it. Same thing goes with the stuff we talked about with the law and the the Sabbath. This has obviously has huge implications for our understanding of not just the gospel, but how we respond to it. So hang in with us. This is part two of this uh, series on context. And so We'll be back next week with part three and the pillar guys. Until then, you guys have a great week and we'll see you next time. Later. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the equipping podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then subscribe and tell your friends. If you have subjects you want us to cover, shoot us an email at equippingpodcast at watermark.org and join us next week as we finish off the three part series with the guys from the pillar seminary. We're going to talk through new Testament passages to illustrate why reading scripture in context is so important. You guys have a great week. Peace.